Create Out Loud is brought to you by Anchor.fm. And if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast so you can, yes, create out loud. It's free. They give you tools so you can record easily on your phone or your computer. They'll distribute the podcast for you. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started. Because yeah, I want you to create out loud. Hey, this is Jen Loudon with Create Out Loud. Welcome back to another fabulous episode all about talking to really wonderful people to help you create out loud. And I hope if you're new that you'll stick around, you'll listen to some of our other episodes and you'll really take to heart the tools and the ideas from these different creators to help you create out loud. And and just to say, what do I mean by that? I mean, you do your work, you do it authentically, you do it big, you do it full and you share it. So our guest this week is Kristen Naff. And if you don't know her, she is the pioneer of self-compassion research. She conducted the very first empirical studies in self-compassion nearly 20 years ago. She's written so many academic articles, the wonderful book, Self-Compassion, supported training program. She's an incredible speaker, teacher, and she's the author of a brand new book that I'm just going to tell you, you're going to want to get. It's called Fierce Self-Compassion. Fierce Self-Compassion. How women can harness kindness and speak up, claim their power, and thrive. She's brought together teachings that, of course, the Buddhists spoke about, other Buddhist teachers have talked about, and Kristen is influenced by Buddhism, but in a really brilliant way with feminism. So let's launch in. We're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about how it can help us create out loud. Why is self-compassion such a struggle for so many of us? Well, there's there's a lot of good reasons for it. So uh, my research actually shows that about 75% of people are significantly more compassionate to others and to themselves. Wow. So don't feel bad if that's the case for you. It's, it's actually normal. Right? Don't beat yourself up for beating yourself up. <laughs> there seems to be a few different reasons. Some are cultural, and I suspect that some are actually physiological. They're part of our evolution. So basically, as human beings, as living creatures, we have two safety systems. We have the threat defense system, which we share with reptiles, the fight, flight, or freeze response. And we also have the the care system, which we share with other mammals. And so the threat defense system is the one that comes on most quickly and easily. Basically, when there's a threat or a danger, we go into fight, flight, or freeze mode. And when the danger is ourselves, like for instance, I just said something really awkward, or I failed at something or something difficult is happening in my life, when we feel personally threatened, we kind of naturally go into this fight, flight, or freeze mode. However, when the when the problems are self, especially because we've made some mistake, what we do is we try to fight ourselves as if somehow like we're going to force ourselves to change and, and do something better so we're, we're safe. Or we flee with shame. We like flee from the judgments of other people and we withdraw into shame thinking that will make us safe. Or we freeze and we get stuck. Also, maybe if I just think about it 72 times, the problem will go away. <laughs> you know, it's very, it's very natural. Now, if someone you care about, like your, your best friend, for instance, fails, you feel for them, but you don't feel personally threatened. Mm-hmm. And so it's actually easier with other people for the other safety system to come online. And that's the care system. This is the system that evolved that babies feel safe when they're 
cared for and feel connected to their parents. It's what drives us to care for other people. This is the system that works through affiliation and bonding. You know, and it's a system that actually evolved mainly to, to work with others. So we're kind of doing a hack with self-compassion. What we're doing is to feel safe instead of going into our habitual fight, flight, or freeze response. We're treating ourselves the way we might treat a friend or someone we cared about. We're kind of stepping outside of ourselves to say, wow, you're having a really hard time. I care. Is there anything I can do to help? And so it's not as instinctual, but it can be practiced. That's what the research shows. That's one dimension. And then the other one's a big, long answer. But just to say our culture doesn't encourage us to be self-compassionate. We think it's selfish. We think it's going to make us lazy. We think it's going to do all these bad things. So we have to kind of unlearn what our culture tells us, listen to the research, which says it's not selfish. It allows you to care for other people. It makes you more motivated. It's healthy. It's not self-indulgent. The new book, which is magnificent, Fierce Self-Compassion, is bringing together how we can both realize the full benefits of self-compassion by developing our tender side that you've just so beautifully described, but also our fierce side. I love that word. I love the concept. What is it about our fierceness as women and people who identify as women that is so difficult also to develop? I mean, self-compassion, one thing, but then our fierceness. I mean, I don't know if that even maybe scares me more. Also, maybe I'll just say a few words about the difference. I mean, they, they go hand in hand. They need to go hand in hand. But tender self-compassion is more of the gentle nurturing energy of compassion. You might think metaphorically, it's like a mother who unconditionally loves her child. Even if her child's screaming, you know, we, like, we soothe ourselves, we comfort ourselves, and this actually helps us emotionally heal. Very important. But, you know, sometimes to be compassionate, we need to be like fierce mama bear. We need to protect or, or provide, you know, like work two jobs, baby, to put food on the table for mm -hmm. our kids. Or also motivate change. You know, you aren't a compassionate parent if you let your child do behaviors that are harmful or that are self-indulgent or if they, you know, aren't going to school or whatever it is. So part of being caring is also motivating healthy change. And so we also need these energies with ourselves. Uh, so we need both fierceness and tenderness. And ideally we have both. So in other words, if we're too tender without enough fierceness, maybe we will become complacent. Mm -hmm. But if we're too fierce so without enough tenderness, maybe we'll be hostile or aggressive, you know. Towards ourselves as Towards well. Towards ourselves other or others. So we really need both. This is this great social leaders like Gandhi or Martin Luther King. They talked about this integration of, kind of power and love, and we need both sides of this equation. Gender role socialization messes everyone up. I got to say, not just women. So boys are raised to be fierce, but not tender. Boys are raised, you know, called names that they're too tender, right? Mm -hmm. And so this actually harms men because they're cut off from their emotional intelligence. They're cut off from the healing power of this kindness and comforting and soothing part of compassion when they're upset. Women, ironically, they're, they're not cut off of it for others, why they can help others. But because we're so socialized to be self-sacrificing, mm -hmm. we feel we don't deserve to be compassionate to ourselves. Ours is only outward focusing. So men are actually more self-compassionate than women are because they feel more entitled to get their needs met. Women, on the other hand, so they're a little less self-compassionate. It feels more awkward, but they understand the power of self-compassion. 85% of the people who come to my workshops are women because women like understand this compassion is a good, useful thing. They just need to give themselves permission to give it to themselves. But then the fierceness is a whole other dimension. You know, boys are raised to be fierce in an unbalanced way, which means it leads to things like aggression, exploitation mm -hmm. of the environment, you know, all these bad, don't want to put it all on men, but you know, a lot of the problems in the world 
are caused by unbridled fierceness without enough open-hearted compassion. But women aren't allowed to be fierce. We aren't allowed to get angry. You know, people don't like powerful, competent women because people think, oh, if she's really fierce, well, then she's not tender. And we like tender women. And if you wonder why we have the glass ceiling, it's because women who are really competent, this is horrible. The research shows they're disliked, especially by other women, because a competent woman scares people and they think, oh, well, she's not very sweet or tender and therefore I don't like her. And that's why the glass ceiling largely still exists. The good news is, as research shows, that if women integrate fierceness and tenderness, show both sides of themselves in an authentic manner, it tends to um, you know, reduce some of that backlash. And so women, I really strongly believe we need to be allowed to fully own our fierceness especially if we want to make changes in the world Mm -hmm. today, because the world needs us. I think the Me Too movement is a collective arising of females fear self-compassion as we say, no, this is harming us. We will not tolerate it anymore. That self-compassion, that kind of mama bear self-protective instinct. But because we're, we're afraid that people won't like us if we do this, and by the way, they may like us a little less, This is one of the things self-compassion gives us. We aren't so dependent on other people thinking we're nice. It's like, but we need to be able to say, you know, I'm sorry, I have to say no. Even if it means that the people don't like it as much, we need to like ourselves. We need to be authentic. We don't want to manipulate people and just like, oh, yes, yes, yes. Just to get them to like us. You know, we say yes when we authentically want to help. And we say no when we need to meet our own needs. We have to be unafraid to do that. This is what our fierce self-compassion does. Uh, this, this energy of this fierceness, it reduces the fear response. It gives us bravery. It gives us courage. It helps focus us on our values. It helps focus us on our goals in life. It's a tremendously beneficial part of compassion that women, again, we have access to it when it comes to raising our kids. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or so, maybe standing up for a cause. Or standing up for a cause or standing up for a friend. Yeah. So it's not like it's foreign to us. You know, all this is very natural. What we're doing as women is just saying, we count too. You know, you might say our needs are also important right. and therefore I'm going to um, harness this energy for myself. You know, and it's also linked to social justice work. It's not okay just to be well and happy yourself sitting on your, you know, your sofa at home. We need to integrate concern with self and others, you know, what we need to help ourselves and also help the world at the same time. And I think women really need to be able to access this fierce, powerful energy, also to engage in the work of social justice, which is so needed. Years ago, I started a project called Savor and Serve. It did, it was a dot because women are like, I serve everybody all the time. I don't savor enough. I don't take care of myself enough. And I think there's truth in that, in in that they don't have compassion and don't self-care. But I also think it's the fear of being sucked in. Yes. Because they don't have the fierceness to have those boundaries and say, I will do this for the social justice, or I will do this for my church. I will do this for the environment. That's it. Right. Yeah. And so doing it authentically. So again, that that's going to be more powerful. You're going to be more motivated. You also, the research is, I have a whole chapter on kind of help. I think it's called caring for others without losing yourself. Mm-hmm. That's a great chapter. Self-compassion to do it in a boundaried way, um, in a way that at, in the moment of helping others, if we're feeling upset or frustrated or exhausted, we actually recharge our own emotional batteries 
with care and kindness, you know, continually asking yourself, what do I need? But also recognizing that we can't totally disentangle what we need from what society needs. Because, you know, if we're in a, like a racist, sexist society with a broken healthcare system and entrenched wealth inequality, that also harms us. It does. Right. So it's really just seeing the bigger picture, but we need to include ourselves in the circle in order to make change. And by the way, I don't have the answers. I'm not, I don't, I didn't write this book as someone who's got it all figured out. And like, I'm not like Dear Abby, I don't know how to go about it. But what I do know is that we need access to both fierce and tender self-compassion to be able to do our work in the world. And what I do is I give you practices to be able to do it. Like these are empirically supported practices. It's not just a good idea. This meditations is also other practices, things you can do in the moment to help cultivate these energies. And it's not rocket science. It's like, that's the thing. You don't have to like go to a special school to learn these skills. We already have them. <laughs> for others. And we just need to give ourselves permission to access these tools. Uh, and that's a great thing. Women are compassion experts. We just right. have to remember to, to use these for tools ourselves. with ourselves. Yeah. So I've got a ton of questions that people have sent me to ask you about creativity and self-compassion yes. and fair self-compassion. One of the quotes in the book that really jumped out at me is with practice, you wrote, I learned to hold my shame with love yes. and it radically changed my life. Yes. And that feels to me like, one of the hardest and most important things that I've learned and I'm still learning. One of the things that comes up in all of these podcast interviews that I do with creatives is without self-compassion, it's so much harder, if not impossible to create, to write, to sing, to paint, to all the different art forms. But how do we learn to hold our shame when our work doesn't turn out the way we want, or it's not received the way we want. I mean, you have a book yes. coming out right now, and I'm sure that there's little ideas in your head about, oh, I hope, you know, I yes, hope Terry Gross loves yeah, it. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Terry, please call me. Exactly. Oprah still hasn't called me, you know? Yes, Do I still on. count if Oprah doesn't know my name? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I hear you. I hear you. And so really, that is one of the most beneficial aspects of self-compassion, because what happens when we shame ourselves or our self-worth is contingent on other people liking us or approving of us, or when we criticize ourselves, basically what it does is it shuts down the creative process, our ability to learn, right? We just get self-absorbed. We can't see the bigger picture. Probably don't work with people in the field of positive psychology. One of the things that positive emotions give us is the ability to be more creative. We aren't so, because negative emotions narrow our focus, positive emotions broaden our focus, which allows us to be more creative, to be more out of the box thinkers. So it's this very clear relationship there. And so here's, here's the cool thing about self-compassion. So compassion, passion means suffering, come means with, by definition, compassion is aimed at our negative emotions and experiences. You know, it's not the only thing in life, but it's a, it's a big thing that tends to shut us down. So when we hold our pain with love, whether that pain is shame or failure or like feelings of loneliness or all the difficult stuff in life, what we're doing is we're, we're there's three components of compassion. There's kindness. Like I, we care about ourselves. There's feelings of love, of warmth, of understanding. There's feelings of connection, remembering that we aren't alone. Failure, making mistakes, not having successful projects. This is part of life. It's not like isolating. It's not abnormal. It's actually part of life. And then mindfulness, the ability to, to hold all of it kind of with some perspective instead of being lost in the negative feelings. It's mm -hmm. like we can step outside of ourselves and say, wow, this is really hard. So when we hold our pain with love, the pain is still there. It's not like we're, we're not, we aren't sugarcoating it. It's not like positive thinking, pretending it's not there, which doesn't work. 
but we're saying, oh, this is really hard. How can I help? Just like we would to a friend who, who came to us with those feelings. And so we're generating positive emotions at the same time that we're connecting with the negative emotions. And what the research shows is it reduces the negative emotions, but it also feels good. It's rewarding to feel mm-hmm. compassion. And those positive emotions is what can open up the creative process. And also, we know there's also for creatives, you know, the negative emotions, there's a lot of juicy stuff there. We don't want to shut them out because that's where a lot of our ideas come from, opening to the shadow side. And so self-compassion helps us open to both the light and the dark. You know, my my books, a lot of the best bits are when I talk about my pain. It's true. And when you talk about your struggles with your son and the, you know, know, yes, a lot of the really difficult experiences I've had. My last chapter is, is all about the compassionate mess like opening to the mess of our lives. Our lives are messy. That's the way they're designed to be. The human experience. When we came into this world, we didn't like sign that everything will go perfectly till the day I die contract. We signed that things are going to be tough. Things didn't go wrong. You're going to struggle, but you're also going to love and laugh and try to get through it. That's the contract we signed as human beings. <laughs> you know, so opening to that with compassion and an open heart, I really think is what allows us to learn from it. And it's not only what I think, what the research shows, this is the right. cool thing, the research shows, it allows us to learn from our failure, right? See it as a learning opportunity to be motivated to try again to make the best of situations to see the silver linings in our difficult experiences it's so important especially for people in the creative fields to have this resource as they open to the tough stuff one of the beautiful things about motivating ourselves with compassion Kristen writes in her new book fierce compassion is that it takes the anxiety and stress out of trying to achieve. We stop exhausting ourselves with the need to be perfect or stand out in a crowd. We don't have to outperform others as a measure of success. How would that change your creative life? I talk to a lot of creatives every day and comparing ourselves to others and not feeling like our work is up to it or why bother to even start because how would we ever create something that holds up to this or that writer, painter, filmmaker, etc.? But when we really live in this place of self-compassion, then what does it matter? It sort of falls away. And what draws us forward, what's interesting to us, what's, what's fresh and juicy for us, what's real for us, can really come alive and make it easier to create out loud. Shutting down, feeling like a failure, that doesn't help. On the other hand, like being Mr. I don't know, I don't, I don't want to put down Mr. Rogers. I actually love him. <laughs> he, he also opened to the pain. You know, he did, one, he did. He was very... Stuart Smiley was a better analogy. Right, right, right. Everything's great. Everything's wonderful. And everybody that's loves not, me. Everyone, that's not helpful either, you know? Right. One of the things, the themes of my book is the way I'm wired, uh, I go quickly to reactive anger, which I got to say is, you know, something I've had to deal with as a compassionate meditation teacher. <laughs> and I always thought it was about, you know, opening to my anger and like making space for it and working with it, which, you know, I have gotten better over the years, but a lot of it's like, I can apologize. I'm so sorry. I lost it. Please forgive me. I'm not an anger management expert, but what I really realized in what led to this book is, you know, I wouldn't trade that part of myself for anything because that's my power source. I wouldn't trade this part of me for anything. That struck me all the way to my core. The power that comes or could come, (laughs) because I think I have a little bit more work to do here, of embracing the really fierce sides of me. I can feel that's an edge for me. What about you? Or are you more comfortable with the fierce sides and not so much the tender self-compassion side? 
that's what helps power me to do so much work and to, to do good work in the world and want to want to help others and that ferocity, that desire to know the truth. So so the god Hindu goddess Kali is kind of one of my metaphors I use, and she's she's ferocious and she's got all these cut off heads in her hand, and you know, she's really scary. A woman know that Kali energy is is inside of them and it scares the bejeebers out of themselves and others. But what does Kali do? She cuts away illusion. Mm-hmm. She is focused on revealing the illusion. And what illusion? It's also the illusion of separation. Seeing these illusions that we create that, you know, we're separate and we're unequal and all these illusions, which is a bunch of BS. Patriarchy is a bunch of BS, you know, and that power to cut that away and say that that's not right. That's not serving love. Really, really important. We want to honor it. We don't want to denigrate it. We want to be balanced, right? Of course, that's why we need to integrate the fierceness and the tenderness. Yeah, I love the exercise. Coming to that realization of loving myself as I am was a real powerful motivator to write this book. I I also want to say, everybody, when you get the book, the the yin-yang exercise is a great one. Thank you. I just feel like you just gave me so much permission to own that fierce side of me. And I was very much enculturated with a, you know, Southern, be a lady. Oh my God, this makes me want to puke. Be a lady. <laughs> like even just that word, it's like my whole skin just goes, yeah. Uh-huh. Ah, there's two things I want to go to. So you, you mentioned the, you know, the Me Too movement. And it feels to me like collectively we are owning our fierceness, our anger, and our rage. Sometimes it feels like I just want to cut everybody's head off. It feels so big and so angry. What do I do with that? <laughs> not yeah, to turn this yeah. into a personal well, therapy and, session. And, and by the way, again, just to say, I'm not so who's figured it all out. I'm someone who's <laughs> on the journey as well. I want to make that clear, you yes, know, because yes. it is difficult. But what I tried to do is I tried to develop practices to be able to work with that energy. Mm. And so one of the ways you do it is by, it's so powerful. You want to work with it in your body and not your head. Yes. Because what happens is if you're thinking so easy, you're just off to the races, right? This person did that and I'm angry and all this. And then the storyline unfolds and you're off to the races. And Mm -hmm. before you know, before you know it, you know, you said something you regret. And so I know when I'm able to work with these things is energy in my body. And that's why I like to use the metaphor of yin and yang, kind of yin is the tenderness, yang is the fierceness. I like it because it's a little more, a little more gender neutral. Mm-hmm. If you work with both energies as a physical sensation in your body, I have found it's a way, first of all, you can integrate them as energies in your body. I know this all sounds a little woo-woo and maybe it is a little woo-woo. These are things you can do and and you you can actually observe them as energies in your body. And so this practice is designed to help you do that. And a lot of it I find is just inviting these energies in. Mm. and allowing yourself that fighting or that closing up like to go back to what you said earlier that there were within we live in a culture and that culture is always sending us messages and influencing us and so even that message that that subtle in the back of my head message this is scary this is wrong this you're going to bite somebody's head off yeah. They're going to call you a bitch. They're going to burn you with the stake. So if you do something like do a practice, like I've got it practices like breathing yin and yang or working mm-hmm. with anger. And again, the key is, is integrating the tenderness. We don't want to cover up. We don't want to yes. reduce. We want to also have our hearts open. Uh, and again, if you look at the great social justice movements or, or like the women's march, 
those women, like they were angry, they were fierce, but there was no violence. There was not like calling men pigs or, you know, it's, it's not personal. It's just saying, no, mm-hmm. we aren't going to, we aren't going to take it anymore. If you can do that in a meditation or within your body first, it's going to help you. You know, I don't want to pretend that this is easy or that, you know, you snap your fingers and get it right. And, and I'm still on the path to this integration, but I know at least for me, that it's the only way forward. No, you know, I, what I happens can't. Is women suppress it and then they explode. Yeah. That's and then I can't healthy. sleep at night and my thoughts are recursive yes. over and over again. I'm so pissed. I'm so pissed. You did that to me. I'm so pissed that right. happened. I'm so pissed right. at what I read in the news. That doesn't work. It's, I think it's essential. I'm so excited about it. It's why I wanted to have you on. It's essential for the creative process, but I also think it's essential for saving this planet and saving ourselves and being the leaders that we know we're meant to be. You know, Because I know one of the questions all women ask themselves is why, if we are more than 50% of the world population, are the bozos still running the show? Or one of the solutions is bringing these two self-compassion and fierceness together. Compassion is the bottom line. So anger can serve compassion. The Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, these are compassion movements. Mm-hmm. It's about preventing harm. And then that's all your line. Is this causing harm or preventing harm, right? Is the anger aimed at saying no, clearly, firmly to prevent harm, then it's compassion. If it starts getting personal and hateful, then it's undermining compassion causing harm or is this helping prevent harm and that's kind of the dividing line and it's hard to remember when you're really activated so again i'm not going to pretend that it's easy but it gives you something to shoot for it gives you a guideline it does that, i love know, that and we will get it wrong so I, like i say at the end the compassionate mess you know including like the female empowerment movement and the feminist movement, and the Me Too movement, we will get it wrong. We can't expect perfection. Mm-hmm. So you try and then you fall off, you get off balance and then you give yourself compassion. You get on again. You just, it's, a, it's a process. It's not like the state you achieve and then, okay, fine, I'm perfect now. You know, it doesn't matter. Right, not, right. which is such way. an easy thing to say. And so it's so essential to actually grok that feeling of always begin again, always yes. begin again. Moment by moment, if you bring compassion to the process, compassion is feels good, feeling loving, feeling connected, feeling kindness, knowing that you're doing this from compassion and love. Uh, that that actually feels good. It's a refuge. It's the refuge we can um, rely on moment to moment as everything unfolds. Yeah. So here's a question from one of my lovely longtime students, Helen. I love being creative, but sometimes the process doesn't feel like it involves self-compassion. Writing is hard for me. It involves anxiety, overeating or smoking to dampen that anxiety, long hours of pushing through until I get the words right. How to reconcile the love of having been creative with a sometimes punishing process. Again, I think the whole process is by taking regular pauses and just asking yourself, what do I need right now? And by the way, sometimes that that question is not always what I need is to get sleep. Maybe what you need right now is to work through till five in the morning, Mm -hmm. right? So it's kind of giving up expectations that it needs to look a certain way. You know, you know, if something's helping or not helping, really having that be your, your guiding question, what you need right now? right? What, what, what's going to help the most right now? You trust yourself, then you know, inside of you, you know what you need right now. I mean, I pulled some all-nighters writing this book. Sometimes I wake up at three o'clock and, oh, I've got, you know, and I get up and I just write, you know, for a couple hours. And yeah, I was tired the next day, but it was, it was good. Really trusting that the motivation of encouragement is actually more effective than the motivation of punishment. 
It's just like how we relate to our kids. The research is very clear that the motivation of punishment, yeah, it kind of works. You are going to work a little harder because you're punishing yourself and it hurts to punish yourself. So you're going to try to avoid the whip by getting things done. But it does create so much unnecessary baggage like anxiety, Mm -hmm. like fear of failure that undermines your ability to perform. Encouragement, because I believe in you. I want this for you. I care about you. Is actually much more effective and sustainable motivator. Yeah. What if you get an answer and you don't want to do it? Like, here's another question. How do you cultivate greater self-compassion for yourself when you're not making the time or space for your creativity to flourish in the ways you want? When you're caught in that, I want this, I need this, but I'm not giving it to myself. Yeah. So I also have um, uh, a practice in there about kind of values. A lot of it is values. Mm-hmm. I mean, we do have different parts to ourselves. And in many ways, I should have called it self-compassion. <laughs> Because we have different parts and they have different needs and they want different things. And it is kind of a mess in there. It's not, you know, it can be a cacophony. It's not harmonious, you know? And so there are actually ways of dealing with it. You know, if you're, if you're into therapy, there's a brilliant therapy system called internal family systems or other people who do parts work, which what you do is you listen to and have compassion for all your parts. But the part of ourselves that's so harsh and such a hard driver to ourselves, we, if we listen to that and realize, oh, I see this really harsh part of myself, uh, this is actually trying to keep me safe. It really is a kind of misguided form of care. And when you tap into that and say like, oh, thank you for trying to care for me. Your methods haven't been so effective, but I appreciate them. That actually then opens the door to other voices, other parts of yourself that are more effective, like the, you know, the encouraging voices. So really listening to all parts of ourselves. I'm not shutting any of them down, seeing that usually what's driving all these voices is some need for safety or for happiness at at the end of the day. Then that can also help us to find a solution that's most effective. Do a lot of that work for myself and for other people too. Just being able to have those conversations with yourself, whether it's in your journal or yes, you know, out on a walk, or sometimes when I'm really stressed and I have to drive somewhere, I'll turn off the radio or the podcast and I will talk to myself and I'll talk to those different parts and just kind of coach them and give them self compassion. Yes, and listen to each one, validate, yeah. validate. Yeah. What I hear you. I hear you're afraid. I hear that you think I really screwed that up. Going away from everybody else's questions to my question for a second. How did this idea come to you for the new book, Fierce Self-Compassion? So first of all, I didn't invent the idea of self-compassion or fierce self-compassion. I kind of repackaged these ideas. But in Buddhism, I would consider myself Buddhist. I've done a lot of Buddhist meditation. There's this idea of fierce compassion. For instance, Sharon Salzberg talks about it. Other great Buddhist teachers talk about it. And this is to counter the idea that compassion is always gentle and soft. So there's this idea that sometimes to alleviate suffering, we need to be fierce. We need to be warriors. There's a story of, you know, one time someone asked the Dalai Lama, who was giving a talk on compassion, well, what do you do about child molesters? And he said, what do you mean? What do you do? You throw them in jail and you, you know, throw away the key. You've got to protect people, but Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean you've got to hate that person. And so the idea of fierce compassion always was intriguing to me, that powerful side of compassion. Uh, And then what had happened is I was starting to get really interested in uh, the gender differences in self-compassion and kind of the blocks. So the main block for men seems to be that they think compassion is going to make them weak. And the main block for women is seems to be that compassion is going to be selfish. 
And so I started thinking about gender differences. And then I realized gender is the whole problem. The fact that gender role socialization, anything female, i.e. compassion is a weakness. Well, that's a problem. And woman, this idea that, you know, meeting your own needs, that's selfish, that's a problem. And so I started thinking about yin and yang, which are kind of ways of referring to the same thing, the more accepting part of life, the more active part of life and realizing we need both. And then realizing that fit in kind of with this fierceness and tenderness. So all these ideas were going around. And so I've been talking about the difference between fierce and tender self-compassion for a few years now. And then I had my own me, me too moment where I actually had someone in my life who turned out to be like a mini Harvey Weinstein. It was terrible. He turned out to be abusing these women that worked at its, it was an autism center and it was just horrible. And I really felt my fierce mama bear rise up. I was like pissed as hell that this had happened and I was not going to let it stand and I was not going to be silent and I was going to do everything I could to protect the woman at the center, including one young woman who was really close to and just seeing the different women's reactions and how some women had such a hard time getting angry about what's happening. They don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to like cause problems. Oh God, even that phrase, I don't want to rock the boat. And just seeing that so clearly and seeing how that's directly linked to the fact that women are socialized not to be fierce and seeing that no, getting angry sometimes is absolutely what you need to do to be compassionate or self-compassionate. And I felt a little bad writing it just for women because men also need fierce self-compassion. And I've had a lot of men say, what about me? It's like, I'm really terribly sorry. Hopefully someone will write a book for men, but it's different. The book for men has to be tender self-compassion, how men can open to their tenderness, tenderness like right. heal themselves from their pain. You know, right. it's just a little different. So I, I decided to write this book for women. It's, it's specific. And gender identity is an interesting one because in some ways, let's say you're socialized as a man, but you identify as a woman. But then the messages you get aren't against your fierceness. They're actually against your tenderness. It's not really so much what your gender identity is, how you've been socialized. Socialized, yeah. Right? Gender identity is not a problem. You know, the problem is that we aren't we aren't allowed to be whoever we are. Right. Or the whole you know, some age people of who are we naturally, are. you know, they're they're both or they're neither, or they're men or they're women. It's like we should be allowed to be our fully authentic selves and to express our yin and yang, our fierceness and tenderness in whatever way is right for us. And trying to stuff anyone into boxes, that's the problem. And that also then goes to our creativity. Like how does, how do the boxes we put ourselves in around our creative voice, around our creative project, around what projects we do, around how we think about our creativity, like how does gender identity come into our creativity? Yeah. Or yeah. And gender role socialization, right? Self-compassion is, it's freedom because you aren't so, you aren't so dependent on other people liking you or approving you because you can like and approve of yourself. You can really ask yourself authentically what's true for me. Mm-hmm. And by the way, moment. that's not done in a selfish way because part of what makes us happy is good relationships with other people. Mm-hmm. So it's not like we've got five units of compassion. And if I give three to myself, I only have two left over for someone else. It doesn't work that way. It's additive. The more we give ourselves, the more we have for others. The more we give ourselves, the more we have for others. Hey, the creative life means saying yes to yourself, which understatement alert is not always easy. So much easier to say yes to everybody else, huh? When you've replaced your mojo, when you've sidelined your dreams, had your heart broken, or you're just like, ugh, stagnant, saying yes can feel impossible. So that's why I created this guided journal. It's super great. It's called 
get your bother on and it's loosely based but totally stands alone from my latest book why bother and it is full of what i call trickster prompts that work like a personal coach like i'm in your ear getting you to see things in a new way so i have a free chapter for you so you can test it out see if you like it just go to jenniferloudon.com forward slash guided journal all one word and get that free chapter and play with it. You don't have to journal every day. You don't have to write a lot, make it your own, but be sure and grab it and give it a try. Just go to jenniferloudon.com forward slash guided journal, all one word, and yeah, give it a go. Tell me what you think. That's very much my experience. And the more, when you say self-compassion is freedom, and I think about both in my relationships with people and my relationship with my work, it's because it's so deeply about self-acceptance. Self-acceptance. Yeah. And the more that I accept myself, the more that I accept my husband and the more that I accept my kids and the more that I accept my clients the way they are or my students. And and as Carl Rogers said, also the paradox, this is the yin and yang, the more I accept myself, the more I can change. Mm -hmm. So accepting yourself as a person doesn't mean that your behaviors aren't going to change or you don't want to change what you do or get really active in terms of what you do, quite the opposite. It's actually allows you, gives you the power to do the work of change in the world internally in terms of your own behaviors and also, you know, externally, Externally. social justice work or creative work. I think just to go back to Helen's question too, and some of the other questions also when you're cultivating that self-acceptance and through self-compassion, through fierce self-compassion, then you're less likely to tolerate the ways you're not showing up for your creative work. Yes, exactly. That's right. You can say, you know, I really, I can't do what my work wants me to do, what my kids want me to do every Tuesday afternoon. No, I really do need to carve this out for myself. You know, this is important. This is valuable to me. You know, it counts. You know, So my research shows that when people have a conflict between their personal need and the need of someone close to them, like a spouse or child or, or friend, that self-compassionate people are more likely to compromise. They don't subordinate their own needs, but they don't say, well, to screw you, my way or the highway either. They mm-hmm. compromise. They, they, they consider everyone's needs and try to come up with a balanced solution. So much my experience. And then when I lose that in the compassionate mess, <laughs> yes. then I tend to be that, oh, I'll just do it for you, or I'll just work some more. I, it's just so clear how quickly yeah. I lose that time for whatever is important to me. That, that so isn't. it is a practice, right? It so is again, a practice. It's, not, it's not hard to do, but we have to remember to do it. And so that's why the mindfulness is such an important part of self-compassion. The mindfulness is the awareness. With self-compassion, the trigger, the mindfulness bell, you might say, is uh, suffering, (laughs) pain, emotional pain. When you feel stressed, when you feel unhappy, when things feel, you know, uncomfortable, distress, then that's a sign, okay, something needs my attention. And then you can even just pause and ask, what do I really need? I've got a lot of self-compassion, what we call the self-compassion break in the, in the book. Mm-hmm. It's like a, taking a little pause and bringing the three components of self-compassion in their various forms. You know, maybe it's tenderness, motivation, protection, providing. And you go through these steps and it actually can help you identify what it is you need. Do you think there's a different mindfulness bell for fierce self-compassion? That's, that's a really good question. Um, it, I wouldn't want to say that it's that simple because, for instance, sometimes when you're angry, that anger is protecting hurt feelings underneath, mm-hmm. right? And so sometimes we, I think we always need both. But what we really need to do is open to it and just, just kind of start to explore it and hold it with kindness 
And then, well, I think it'll kind of emerge. Sometimes what that means is, if, say, if we're angry, sometimes what we do need is to draw our boundaries more, more firmly. Sometimes what we need to do is deal with some hurt and pain underneath it with tenderness. So I, it really is a process and it's, it's a messy process. You know, and I think a lot of people, they want real guidance about what do I do in this situation? Yeah, it's so I, true. Don't and I, I can't give it. It's like, no. I don't know. You're the yeah. only one who knows. And it's so complex yeah. and so many factors go into it. You're, you know, we're really the only ones who can answer that question. And also mm-hmm. the answer changes moment by moment. So it is a process. It's not a destination. It's a, it's a way of being. It's a mindset accompany us on the journey. But yeah. it makes a huge difference when you do. I know this from my personal life. It's made a huge difference for me. So a couple more questions from people. I'm grappling at the moment with how to create more self-compassion when I have multiple invitations from the muse and feel the pain of needing to choose one over the other. Because of course we're human. And as I always joke, we live in the space-time continuum. Any thoughts on creating more self-compassion when you're having trouble choosing your projects, choosing your ideas? Like, what do you do? You have so much going on. You have so many research projects and people that you're overseeing. And how did you choose this book, for example. You know, and again, there there are no easy answers. So I, I often do my self-compassion practice at three in the morning for whatever reason. It's almost like clockwork. I wake up at three and all my head's swirling and all that stuff is happening. I actually do a practice, for instance, I, I tell myself, may I let go of what no longer serves me? Mm-hmm. The most behaviors or even projects or things I'm doing that aren't really serving me. I invite myself to let go of what doesn't serve me. I do a lot of my self-compassion work physically in my body. You know, for instance, it, it's kind of strange. And it's as a scientist, it, it's hard to explain why it works, but as empirically, I know it works. So a lot of the stuff gets sorted out in terms of my body. Like if I'm having tension, I actually work with letting go of that. I might put my hand on my stomach. Let's say I have a lot of tension and just give myself kindness and say, this hurts and may let go of what no longer serves me. And sometimes things will shift and like move in my body energetically. And then often then I get a little more clarity mentally. Things like, for instance, I'm retiring. I talked about this in the book, this early retirement from UT Austin because there were some things that didn't work out that well. And also was, it was, was interfering with my ability to do what I know is my calling, which is to go around the world teaching self-compassion, you know, so writing journal articles at this point is not the best use of my time. You know, it was for a while, but now other people are doing this, not the best use of my time. You know, asking yourself the question, allowing yourself to get it wrong. You may get it wrong. Don't expect it to be an easy process. Mm. You know, again, it really is a mindset as you work with that confusion. You know, I, is it okay to be confused? Is it okay not to know? Is it okay to be conflicted just to do the best you can moment to moment? I, there's so much in there, though. We're, we have such a hard time being conflicted. We want it to be clear. We want it yes. to be neat. And we want it to be right. Yes. So one of the other things I practice is not knowing, which is hard for me because I'm a scientist. You're a scientist. (laughs) You know, and I want to know, and I I like to get it right. May may let go, but no longer serves me. And may open to uncertainty. That's another practice I do, which is self-compassionate, kind of trusting that again, moment by moment, we'll try to, you know, what do I need right now? Well, actually, maybe I don't know what I need next year or even next month. What do I need right now? And just trying to trust the unfolding process, opening to uncertainty, opening to conflict, being okay that you don't know the answer. 
beholding it all again with love and support and trying to do the best you can moment to moment. This Here's the thing self-compassion gives you when you get it wrong and you will get it wrong. Self-compassion doesn't say, no, I'll never make mistakes again. That's not what self-compassion is. I have a line in there. Self-compassion isn't about getting it right. It's about opening your heart. So maybe you will make the wrong decision, you know, and you get it wrong and you'll make a mistake and then, okay, well, can I open to that with kindness and compassion? Then I get it, pick myself up and try again. Part of the journey is again, moving moving away from how do I know the right answers or even, even how do I attain balance? This whole thing is so paradoxical. It's not like you attain balance. You're constantly striving, striving to be more balanced, which means maybe with moments of balance, I mean, get out of balance. And then we relate to that with compassion and we, you know, get up again. And it's like, it's a process. It's not a place. Learning to love, embrace, and be compassionate with that teeter-totter That's right. of life. I cut just a couple more questions. One is you're taking early retirement. This is a big change. Is that your creativity calling you to that? Is it? And the part of it is because of, uh, they didn't promote me to full professor. <laughs> I don't think my, my university really fully appreciates what I do. And so it's like, well, then maybe this isn't the best place for me. That's, that's part of it. So that's fear, self-compassion in action. But I'm actually kind of glad in a way because I might have been more tempted to stay because it's really not the best use of my time. Mm-hmm. Right? It's really thinking, well, what is, how can I make the biggest difference in the world? And teaching a course at the university and like, and I'll still do some research. I'll, I won't totally drop it, but it's not the best use of my time. It's really just asking, well, what is, where can I make the most impact? I mean, that was part of the problem. Academia doesn't necessarily value your impact on the world. They value things like how how many grants you get or how many committees you serve on. And it's like, (laughs) or, you know, going to conferences and so 50 people come to your talk and it's like, I'm sorry, that's just not the best use of my time. So right, they value busy work. They value my values that are about, you know, in academia and the values are different. My line is how, how much does this help people? So I'm more of an out of the box thinker and that's not so valued in academia, believe it or not. I think it should be. I think the values of academia are a bit skewed, but nonetheless, that's the way they are. So just, I mean, I'm fortunate. My livelihood is actually, academia isn't the best source of that anyway. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. I, you know, not, not everyone's in this position, but it was actually a pretty easy decision once I made it and it seemed right. It's a little scary, you know, tenure, job for life. It's hard to give that up, but sure. But I feel pretty comfortable with my decision. So one of the last questions I like to ask everybody is what will you learn next? What will I learn next? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, if I knew that, right, I wonder, <laughs> then I won't be learning it. <laughs> well, what will you explore? What might you yeah. learn next? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, I really practice really is opening to uncertainty. I don't know what's ahead for me. I really don't. I know things are changing. So I know I'm leaving academia. I know I'm going to kind of, I'm going to have to start my own business, so to speak, in the sense of my self-compassion work. This is leading. I I think it's, things are going to happen. I hope they are. I feel it in my gut that this is where I should be spending my time. I'm not sure where it's going to lead. And I'm really just open to the adventure, but I I do... (laughs) Look, how can I say this? There is something that's happening with women. I can feel it. Every woman I talk to can feel it. I actually opened my book with this. There's something in the air. Mm-hmm. There's something afoot. Hard to put exactly a label on it, what that is, what that's going to look like. But change is happening. And there is some arising of this female, female fierceness. It's happening all over the world. And it's not, it's transpersonal. It's not in any one woman. You know, if you're an astrologer, maybe like the stars are shifting or I don't know what's happening, but something is happening or maybe it's just time given the unfolding of events. 
And I'm going to do everything I can to help in this unfolding process. I talk a lot about it and I hope I don't sound too preachy, but it's true. Like global warming, how much time do we have left? Health inequality, wealth inequality, sexism, racism. I mean, really, it's like it's gotten to the point now where it's not sustainable. Things are going to have to change and quickly. We don't have like 200 years. Well, I don't know how long we have, but so intuitively, I know that we need compassion. We need fierce and tender self-compassion. If I can help in any way, that's where I, that's where I want to be spending my time and energy. What that looks like, I don't know, but I'm prepared to do it, to do whatever I can to help. And I do think I do, you know, I do feel like I'm on the right track, at least right now. And it won't just be me at the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion, which is a nonprofit that I co-founded with Chris Germer. So other people will be doing this work. And then hopefully, like with compassion, at first it was kind of just me and my graduate mm-hmm. students doing the work. And now it's this whole huge field. And hopefully the fierce self-compassion part of it will also catch on. We'll just see where it goes. Um, it's, it's exciting. It's really exciting. It's so exciting. And I can feel the fierce self-compassion and everything you just said. I'm on fire and I'm ready to go. Good, good. <laughs> yeah, you, you've got a lot of young energy. So you know what I'm talking about, I can tell. Thank you so much. It's been an incredible conversation. I appreciate it so much. You're welcome. It's been a lot of fun. I hope this interview convinced you yet again. Self-compassion is the most important practice, practices, outlook, mindset in your creative toolkit. And it feels good. It's going to make you want to create more of the time and versus being cruel to yourself, judging yourself, raising the bar on yourself. It makes it scarier and scarier to your threat defense system to go into the studio, to go to the computer, to go to the paintbrushes, whatever it is that you create. So self-compassion, if there's one thing you ever take away from this podcast, I hope it is learning, practicing, just even putting your hand on your heart right now and saying, darling, yeah, yeah, you got this. Next week, we're going to talk to another person whose work I study and revere and lean on a lot, and that's Lisa Cron. She is a brain and story expert. Her new book is Story or Die. I know. It's the first book that she's written not for writers about the power of story and how to use it in the world to affect change. And you're going to love that interview too. But right now, what are you going to do? What are you going to take from this? And really, like, make a note to yourself or write it in your calendar or put it in your, your Evernote or whatever system you use for notes or share it with a friend. Come write me a podcast review. That would be really cool too. But mainly what I want you to do is I want you to take to heart that your work matters and that being kind to yourself is never going to make you lazy or less of a creator. It's always going to make that act that you love, that brings you alive, more possible. See you next week.